As we continue our series this morning in the Apostles' Creed, that ancient summary of Christian doctrine, we're coming to a somewhat unique part in the Creed. We're coming to the first part that deals with the future, and also with the first part that deals with judgment. So far, we've been talking primarily about things that happened in the past. Uh, God the Father created everything. Uh, Jesus was born of a virgin. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, and so on and so forth. Uh, but today we come to the, and then last week even, we looked at a part that deals with the present. We said he's seated today at the right hand of the Father. But now we look ahead to the future. We're looking at the part that says, I believe in Jesus Christ. He will come to judge the living and the dead. Now, for much of my Christian life, I've assumed that judgment is a part of the Christian message that uh, people don't like. Right, it's part. It's part of it. You know, it's it's probably is more common still today to think of Jesus as a teacher, as a friend, as a guide, than to think of him as a judge, one coming to judge. And I've assumed that the reason for that is we're just not comfortable with the idea of judgment. But I'm I'm increasingly convinced that that's not true. Actually, we live in an age of moral outrage. Everybody's judging someone for something. And we're ready to rant or tweet about it at the drop of a hat. Everybody's separating the sheep from the goats, as Jesus is depicted as doing in this passage. So conservatives are separating the moral from the immoral and trying to punish the immoral. People of a more liberal persuasion, they're they're separating the tolerant from the bigoted and trying to punish the bigoted, or the oppressed from the oppressors and trying to punish the oppressors. In, in more petty ways, uh, racists are separating the white from the non-white and trying to punish the non-white. We separate the cool from the uncool and try to exclude the uncool. We separate even the, the tolerant from the open-minded, right? And, and, or the, the judgmental from the open-minded. Uh, sorry, yeah, the judgmental from the open-minded and try to punish the judgmental. So I don't really think it's true that we have an issue with judgment in general. Everybody's judging. What we have an issue with is the idea that we might be judged. We tend to judge in such a way that we exclude ourselves, that it's mainly something that's pointing outward. So is the day coming, though, when even we will be judged? Well, the passage that we just read uh, tells us that Jesus is coming to judge the living and the dead according to works and with eternal consequences. So first, he will come to judge the living and the dead. The first verse of our passage clearly states what's summarized in this part of the Apostles' Creed, that the Son of Man, which is another title for Jesus, will come. It's coming again. And it says specifically that he will come in glory. So I mentioned as we've gone through the Apostles' Creed, we've looked back at some things that have happened. Jesus has already come once, but when he came the first time, he came in humility. That's why we call it a state of humiliation. His glory was veiled behind his humanity. In fact, he took on the form of a servant and even became obedient to the, death, to the point of death, death on a cross. And so his glory is not on full display in his humanity. But when Christ returns, he will come in this glorious, exalted, resurrected body. When he came the first time, he came in humility because he was coming not to judge the guilty, but to save the guilty, to forgive the guilty. And yet we see here that in his second coming, he is coming to judge. So verse 31 continues that when he comes in his glory, he will sit on his glorious throne. What elsewhere in scripture is called the judgment seat of Christ. And all nations will be gathered before him. No exceptions. From the most powerful to the least, 
you and me, all of us will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And we will not be the ones doing the judging. We will be the ones receiving the judgment. It says he will take all the nations and he will separate the sheep from the goats. Well, he will separate the righteous from the unrighteous as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. None of us are shepherds. Apparently, uh, shepherds at the end of the night when the sheep have mingled with the goats will separate the two of them and bring the sheep into the barn. So saying that's what Jesus is going to do with all the nations. It's going to be a big crowd in front of him. And there will be some who he puts on his right, the place of honor in the ancient world, and some who he puts on his left, the place of shame, the place of curse or dishonor. I realized while I had the city groups up here, I put them on my left. Fail, you know, total fail. I should have had them on my right. Anyway, it's more of an ancient convention, but that's, that's what it means. It means he's judging, discerning a difference between them, and he's doling out consequences to each. Curse to those on his left, blessing to those on his right. It's judgment, right, in the most basic sense of the word. In the most basic and truest sense of the word, Jesus is judgmental. But it's part of his glory that he's judgmental. No, he's coming in glory to do this. It's not a flaw in Jesus. Because think about it. When you are outraged at something that you know is genuinely evil, is that a character flaw or a character strength in you? If somebody were to look at something genuinely evil and just be totally unaffected by it, doesn't do anything to them, Would you look at them and say, you know, I love how open-minded you are. I love how tolerant you are. No, you'd say, something's wrong here. Why doesn't it bother you? You know, this evil thing is happening. Well, if that's true for you, how much truer must that be of Jesus Christ? If he's truly glorious, and we know the evil that humans are capable of, how could he not be outraged? How could he not come to judge the living and the dead? A couple weeks ago, I quoted Frederick Douglass, and he was recounting the sins of his slave masters, and he couldn't help but ask, will not a righteous God visit for these things? Well, the answer to Frederick Douglass's question is yes, and his name is Jesus Christ. He will come to judge the living and the dead. Only his judgment is is not like ours. It's not um, stained by all the um, insecurities that we're trying to cover up in the way that we judge others, all the pettiness, all the ways that we're trying to bolster our self-esteem, it's administered by a perfect and righteous judge. And it's his judgment. Miroslav Volf, a Romanian theologian, he says, "It's, it's not our judgment that we can use to point at the people we don't like. It's not our tribes that we can use to just point outward. It's a judgment that we also must sit under. You and me, every nation, appears before the judgment seat of Christ. So what you do in this life, the way you live this life, matters. There is coming a day when you will be judged for it, when I will be judged for it. You know, uh, people have sometimes claimed that if you believe in an afterlife, you'll be more apathetic about life here. You'll say, it doesn't matter what happens here, you know, i got pie in the sky. But it's more common, actually, that belief in no afterlife, that there is no judgment coming emboldens those with power to use their power in the service of themselves, secretly nourished by the belief that they will never have to answer for the things that they have done on this earth. But if you call on him as Lord, Jesus Christ, who will come to judge the living and the dead, how can you be indifferent to justice? How can you be indifferent to the way that you live here on earth? He will come. He will come in glory to judge the living and the dead. Now, let's look at how he'll do it. He'll do it according to works. 
So verse 35, speaking to the righteous, this is what Jesus says to them. I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. On the other hand, literally in this case, to those on his left, verse 42 says, I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. So what's the difference between the sheep and the goats? How does he discern the righteous and the unrighteous? He says the difference between them is how they treated him. The difference is their attitude towards Christ, where they stand in relation to him. Now, I understand uh, faith is a process, believing, right? There's questions that you've got to work through, difficult questions that you have to ask, and it takes time. But the day is coming when it will be clear whether you were for Jesus or against him. Where you stand with him will come into the light. And on that day, there's only two options. There's sheep and there's goats. It's a binary. There's no group for the undecideds. It takes time, but the time will expire someday. And it will be clear where you stood in relation to Jesus Christ. It's, it's, it's hard to tell sometimes in this life, right? Sometimes you don't know what you believe, and sometimes you're not sure where you even stand or where other people stand. But one of the features of this final judgment is that who you really are comes into the light. You will be yes or no for Jesus Christ, and there will be no undecideds. Your yea or nay will come into the light, and there will be no abstentions. Now, that's what both groups have in different from one another, right? How they treat Jesus. But what they have in common is they're both surprised when they hear Jesus say this. They say, Lord, when did, when did we see you naked or hungry or thirsty or in prison? And he answers in verse 40, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Do you see what he's saying? Jesus is saying he takes injustice personally. When you mistreat one of the least of his brothers, the reason that's so wicked is because it's actually a mistreatment of him. It's ultimately, all sin is ultimately against him. The least of his brothers are often those with the least power on earth, the least power to defend themselves, the one who nobody stands up for. But a day is coming when the one who with all power will identify with them and will stand up for them on their behalf. He says, the way you treat them is the way you treat me, and that's how I'll judge how you treated me. So who are these people? Who are the least of his brothers? Well, thankfully, uh, in another place in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus actually answers the question, who are my mother and my father and my brothers? Who's my real family? And the way he answers it in Matthew 12, 50, is that his brothers are those who do the will of his father. So in this passage, he's focusing on people who identify with him, who are his disciples. So what he's saying, in other words, um, and, and the least of them would be the hungry, the thirsty, the foreigner, the naked, the sick, and the imprisoned among those who identify with him, who are his disciples. So what he's saying basically is, I judge the way you love me by the way you love other Christians, especially the least of them. Now, he's not saying that we have no responsibility to love people who aren't Christians. His judgment will be, according to the whole law of God, which commands us to love our neighbor and even our enemies. But it's not his focus here. Because his focus here is on how you treated him. 
And the clearest way for him to see how you've treated him is to see how you've treated those who bear his name, those who identify with him, those whom he identifies himself with, Christians, especially the least of them. He judges your yea or your nay toward him from how you treated them. He judges whether you're for or against him, righteous or not, according to what you do, according to your works, in other words, or, in the case of the unrighteous, what you have not done, what you have left undone, your lack of works. Now, we said earlier, you know, judgment's kind of common today. We're all doing it. But the way Jesus judges is different. Well, his standard of judgment is also different, very different from the most popular ways judgment happens today. So, again, in more conservative, kind of right-leaning circles, the sheep and the goats are the moral and the immoral. And so righteousness tends to be judged according to what you don't do. Uh, don't have sex with certain people. Don't drink. Don't go to watch certain TV shows or identify with certain groups. Um, but Jesus' judgment is not simply according to the bad works you didn't do. It's according to good works that you did do. There's actually a positive duty that he's putting on us to feed the hungry, to give drink to the thirsty, to clothe the naked, and so on. On the other hand, in more kind of liberal left-leaning circles, where the righteous and the unrighteous are the tolerant and the bigoted, righteousness tends to be judged according to how you tolerate other people. So did you let them live the life they wanted to live? That's the important question. But Jesus' judgment goes beyond that. The sheep in this passage aren't just the ones who let the hungry live the life they wanted to live. They're the ones who got involved in the lives of the hungry and actually started feeding them. Or if righteousness is uh, defined, or the sheep and the goats are defined more in terms of oppressed and oppressors, judgment tends to be according to what you have or what group you belong to. So if you have money, you're automatically unrighteous. If you don't have money, you're automatically righteous. If you belong to the oppressor group, white, male, cis, whatever, you're automatically unrighteous. If you belong to the oppressed group, you're automatically righteous. Now, Jesus, his judgment, though, is not ultimately based on the group to which you belong or to what you had. It's based on what you did. It's according to works, right, what you've done. You know, this quote by Martin Luther King has been ripped out of its context and abused in a lot of ways, but Jesus' judgment day really is the day when his dream will come true, that people will be judged not according to the color of their skin, but according to the content of their character. His judgment is according to works. But if you leave it there, it's easy to read this passage and see it as teaching religion. Do good works so that Jesus won't punish you. But there's a problem with that interpretation, and it's the question that the righteous ask Jesus after their works are listed. They say, we did what? <laughs> uh, when, when did we see you? Those I've, They don't realize it, right? They don't say, well, it's about time. You know, all these many years I've served you, and I've been waiting for my reward. Nobody's noticed. I'm always taking care of others. Do that. What are you talking about? So I, I say that because after hearing a passage like this, it's going to be easy for some of you, and I would include myself among you, so I'm kind of sympathizing with you. It'd be easy for you to say, Man, that stuff on judgment was scary. Sure don't want it to happen to me. Um, let me go find some stuff to do. I don't know. I volunteer somewhere, sign up somewhere, because I, I, I want to get Jesus off my back, kind of. That's not the attitude. That's not, that's not the sheep, right? 
That's not the kind of description that we're seeing here. The sheep aren't the people who are feeding the hungry because it's going to get Jesus off their back and get them into heaven. They barely knew they were doing it. They're doing it just because they love, actually. They love Jesus, and they love his people, so they just do it without expectation of return. They do it because they love. So you can't trick Jesus. You can't say, you know, I don't really love you, don't really love these people, but I sure don't want to get punished, so all right, I'm going to do some stuff. I'm going to volunteer. I'm going to sign up. That's, that's volunteerism. That's tokenism. That's not righteousness. That's not the attitude that Jesus blesses in this passage. It's not a description of his sheep. But he does evaluate the actions. He evaluates the works. But he does it to determine whether you're righteous or not. They're a marker. They're an evidence. He judges according to works, but not on the basis of works. The blessing comes according to your works, but not as a result of your works. The guy in the first service shared a prophetic word with us from Ephesians 2. Very clear. By grace you've been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And yet the judgment is according to works. So how does that work? Well, the, the analogy of the sheep and the goats is actually helpful here. Because when a shepherd is separating the sheep from the goats, he wants to know who are genuinely the sheep. But how does he do it? He has to evaluate the evidence. He looks at, you know, I don't know how shepherds actually do this, but white fur, I guess, and the shape of their head, and goats eat trash, I think, and sheep don't. And so, you know, he, he looks at evidence from the externals to determine what's a sheep. But wearing a white coat doesn't make you a sheep. If I showed up in a nice, you know, fleece jacket, Jesus wouldn't say, or, you know, the shepherd wouldn't say, sure, stay in the barn tonight. In fact, Jesus talks about wolves in sheep's clothing, and he says they won't be accepted. So you can't just plaster on good works and trick Jesus. Say, look, you know, you got to accept me now. That's not coming from love for him. It's not what he's after. The, the people in this passage do the works they do, not because they're afraid of Jesus, but because they love him. And if you love Jesus, how can you not love the least of his brothers? So John Calvin, the great reformer, said, So then, whenever we are reluctant to assist the poor... Let us place before our eyes the Son of God, to whom it would be base sacrilege to refuse anything. Jesus really expects his sheep to do these things. He says, if you love me, then when you see one of the least of my brothers hungry and thirsty, you're going to so want to change that that you will inconvenience yourself to feed them. When you see one of the least of my brothers naked, you're going to so want to change that that you will inconvenience yourself to clothe them and to get them shelter. Basically what clothing was in the ancient world. You're going to get them shelter. When you see one of the least of my brothers uh, estranged, new to a place, nowhere to live, no community, no people with which they belong, you will go out of your way. You will inconvenience yourself to welcome them. When you see one of the least of my brothers sick, you will inconvenience yourself to be with them through their sickness and to connect them to the proper medical care. When you see one of the least of my brothers imprisoned, you will so want to come alongside them that you will inconvenience yourself to visit them and be with them, even in their imprisonment. And you'll do none of this because you're scared of Jesus, because you've got to rack up good deeds to get him off your back. You do it because you love him. Now, um, his sheep, 
he really expects his sheep to do these things, right? And, and now I know that it's, it's easy for you to think, if you live in Philadelphia, come on, man. <laughs> like, I, I walk by homeless beggars all the time. If I was really going to take this passage seriously, I would have to stop and I would have to you know, feed each one of them and give them all my money and house them and restore them to full health. That's not necessarily what Jesus is saying here. Although, it would certainly be a wise and appropriate application of this passage to buy someone a meal, to get to know them, to hear their story, to consider how you might be instrumental in God's hands for their good. But he's not saying you have to do every good work imaginable. Um, There's a simplicity to this judgment. He's not saying, if on the day you die, there was one hungry person left out there, then you're a goat, and you're going to go into the eternal punishment. You can't do every good work. And if you try to, to get Jesus off your back again, you'll never have peace. You'll never be able to do enough. That's where that mentality is so limited. If the idea is I want to get Jesus off my back, um, you're going to tend to ask the question, how, what do I have to do? Just tell me what I have to do so I can have a, a peaceful conscience and I can go to sleep at night, and you're going to ask the bare minimum question. But if you love Christ, if you've experienced his love, you are going to want to do these works. It's going to make you say, how can I do more of them? Right? How can I be more engaged in these things given the way that I've been loved by him? He genuinely expects them to happen. Jesus' sheep are not those who just follow their dreams and achieve emotional, physical, and spiritual health, mental health. Those are all good things. But he's saying his sheep are actually engaged in the lives of others and doing the good works that he's listing here. So how do you get started? Well, Jesus helps us in this passage. He says um, our focus should be, at first, on the least of his brothers. So the simplest place to start is to become a member of a local church. Uh, again, we don't have an axe to grind that that be at City Light. We do have a membership class coming up next Sunday. That'd be a great first step. At City Light, that would mean also being a part of a city group where you might actually know people well enough to know when they're hungry, when they're thirsty, when they're restrained, when they're, and so on and so forth. If you just have surface-level relationships with everyone in your life, you're probably not going to know them well enough to know when the needs arise. Your city group is also going to be the best place for you to figure out where are the people in our communities who are hungry, who are thirsty, who are lacking shelter, who are imprisoned. Nonetheless, as we at City Light have wrestled with passages like this, we've realized we need to start there, right? Because you've got to start with your family. You, you can't go out and solve world hunger while your kids are starving. You've got to start with your family. But we don't want to stop there. Because in a city like Philadelphia, in Philadelphia, there are 180,000 people that's the estimate, living in deep poverty, which means they live on an annual income that is less than half of the federal poverty line. Now, if you just took that 180,000 and made a city out of it, it would be the third most populated city in the state of Pennsylvania. 180,000 people in deep poverty. And frankly, a lot of them aren't in our church, right? There's 180,000 of them. And a lot of them are actually our brothers and sisters in Christ, the least of his disciples. Uh, many of them are not. They're just bearers of God's image and worthy of dignity and justice as a result of that. And so we felt like we need to start here, but we don't want to stop there. So we have a mercy and justice team. This team oversees City Light's efforts to do the kind of works that are described in this passage. The team doesn't exist to do the works for us. They exist to help us as Jesus' sheep do them. Jesus expects all of his sheep to be doing these kinds of things. It's the goats, actually. They leave these things left undone. So how do they do that? Well, one way they do that is they come alongside people in material need. 
So if this passage describes you, if you're one of the least of his brothers, we would love to know that. And if you're helping people who this passage describes, but you're hitting a wall, you want help, you want coaching along that way, that's why our Mercy and Justice team is there. We have a box on your Connect card that says receiving assistance. That's why that box is there. Please let us know if you have a need or you're helping others in need. We would love to um, help you in that process. Another way they do that is they coordinate partnerships between City Light and organizations in our community that are doing these kinds of things. So currently at our congregation, we're investigating a partnership with the Spring Garden School, which is the K-8 through neighborhood school just north of where we're gathering today for worship. We've already done a teacher appreciation breakfast there. We're looking for help with a few things coming up uh, that I want to put on your radar. One is we're looking for people to sponsor kids for an annual book fair from April 8th to the 12th. That would involve donating money to enable them to buy books. And we're hoping also potentially develop relationships to improve literacy in the school. We're also looking for people who might have daytime availability to help proctor PSSA exams towards the end of April. And if you'd be interested in helping us plan another appreciation breakfast for the teachers and staff there to boost their morale, we would love to know about that too. Um, The teachers really appreciated it. One of the teachers comes to our worship services here and... um, they, they signed a thank you card, all of them, uh, and wrote a really nice note to us that they left in the orange box for us last week. So um, let us know about those things. Finally, I'll just mention uh, the Easter outreach that I talked about earlier is like an obvious way to apply this. It's you're feeding people who are hungry. And so volunteering with that would be another great way to kind of get started in another way our, our mercy and justice efforts are trying to help you do these things. So to get more involved with any of these things, just go to your city group. That's a great place to hear about it. If you want to be more involved with them, uh, you can also just put that on your Connect card, write something in there like Easter Outreach or Spring Garden School and put that in the orange box so we can know about that. We are going to be looking for someone to coordinate our partnership with the Spring Garden School moving forward. The guy who's currently doing it is uh, moving and transitioning out. So if that's something that would interest you, definitely let us know about that. Okay, so those are just some ideas of how to get started. Jesus will come to judge according to works, not on the basis of works. And finally, the judgment will have eternal consequences. So before we get to the eternal, let me talk a little bit about the consequences. And as I do, just don't forget that in judgment, punishment's not the only thing that's happening. There's also rewarding Justice not only punishes the guilty, it rewards the righteous. And so as we see these consequences, don't miss that both of those things are happening. So, and Jesus actually starts with the reward. That's what he's fronting, really, in this passage. In verse 34, he goes to the righteous and he says, come. And then to the unrighteous, in verse 41, he says, depart from me. So the consequence, basically, is proximity to Christ. It's being near to him for all of eternity. The righteous will come and be near him. Those on his left will be told to depart from him. So do you see how that's a just and fitting consequence? Those who rejected Jesus in this life and who evidenced that by rejecting the least of his brothers will not be near him forever. Whereas those who welcomed Christ and evidenced that by welcoming the least of his brothers will be welcomed by Christ. Those who wanted to be near Jesus will be near Jesus for all of eternity. And those who didn't want to be near Jesus will depart from him for all of eternity. So people say, you know, I I just can't believe in a God who would send people to hell for not believing in Jesus. But how is this unfair? The people who want Jesus get him, the people who don't won't. Now, some people say, I want Jesus. It's the Christians that I can't stand. And that's understandable, frankly. Um, Christians, we've been capable of some terrible things and have done terrible things. 
that I wouldn't want to rationalize, justify, or minimize in any way. But here's the catch with this passage. Jesus judges your love for him based on how you treat Christians, especially the least of them. So you can't really get the sheep or the shepherd without dealing with the sheep. When he says, come, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from before the foundation of the world, that's a kingdom that's going to be filled with sheep. You can't have the shepherd without the sheep. Despite how messed up the sheep often are, you'd probably fit right in with them, right? We all are. Can't have the shepherd without the sheep. So the consequence is first proximity to Christ, being near to him. And then it's really an announcement and a solidifying of your true identity. So look at what he says next in verse 34. After he tells them to come, he calls them, he gives them a name. You who are blessed by my father. So no matter how much of a failure you have felt like in this life, no matter how much of a failure other people have told you you are, no matter what labels you've worn that have identified you negatively, none of those are going to matter on that day. Jesus will not look at you and say, depart from me. I don't take your kind. If you belong to him, if you're one of his sheep, he will say, come, you who are blessed by my father. And blessed by his father is going to be the only identity, the only label that will matter eternally. On the flip side, in verse 41, he looks at the unrighteous, those on his left, and he says, depart from me, you cursed. Which means, no matter how successful you felt in this life, no matter how much other people have pumped you up, no matter what positive identities you identified yourself with, those aren't going to be the ones that matter in the end. They're not going to be what Jesus calls you. They're not bad in and of themselves, but they're not going to be what ultimately matters. He's not going to say, come, I really need you. You're really cool. He's going to say, if you don't belong to him, if you're not one of his sheep, depart. You cursed. And cursed will be the only identity that you wear for all of eternity. When your true identity is revealed, it determines where you reside. So he says to the righteous, come, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. He's saying there is a kingdom, a home, that was prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. Come. Come to that place you've been looking for your whole life but can't find on earth. You will be home forever with him. And he looks at the unrighteous and he says, depart to the place that was not prepared for you, to the place that was prepared for the devil and for his angels. And you will be eternally homeless in an unquenchable fire. And what verse 46 summarizes as eternal punishment, which means what it sounds like, never-ending, conscious torment, away from the presence of Jesus Christ. Now that is a terrifying thought. It's a tragic thought. But the way to deal with it, like any terrifying thought, is not to pretend it's not there. It's not to pretend it's not true. It's also not to turn around and accuse Jesus of being too severe or too harsh. How are you going to send people to hell? That would assume that we know justice better than he does. We don't sit in judgment on him. He sits in judgment on us. And think about it. Why do you feel the moral outrage you feel when you see genuine evil occur? It's because by God's grace, you do have some measure of righteousness, right? Some idea that there's right and wrong, just and unjust, and injustice should be punished. Now imagine if you had that to its greatest possible degree, 
to infinity. Imagine if you had no mixture of sin and selfishness and unrighteousness. Imagine if justice and righteousness themselves were identical with your very being. That's the case with Jesus Christ. And it's why sin, evil, unrighteousness evokes an infinite response that only eternity could satisfy. And yet, don't lose sight at the same time of the infinite generosity of Christ. For love and kindness are also identical with his being. So that verse 46 ends with the righteous entering into eternal life, which is what it sounds like. Never-ending, conscious joy in the presence of Jesus Christ. Now, if you want to accuse Jesus of injustice or unfairness, might I suggest to you that this is actually a better place to start. If he's open to the charge anywhere, it might be here. Sin deserves punishment. But what have these sheep done to deserve such an incredible reward? They know it, right? They're like, we did what? (laughs) You know, like, they did their duty, basically, right? I mean, they didn't cure AIDS. They didn't solve world hunger. They gave a hungry guy some food. They basically just did what they were supposed to do, what we're all supposed to do, to make them worthy of eternal life. Where does this incredible reward come from? They know it. So they ask him, right? They say, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or strange or naked or sick or in prison? And as we've seen, uh, Jesus answers that question by pointing to the least of his brothers. He identifies himself in general with his people and especially with the least of them, the materially poor. But there was coming a time after he gave this speech to his disciples when he would identify with his people in an even more specific way, especially the least of them, especially the materially poor. So the ultimate answer to Jesus' question, to their question, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or estranged or naked or sick or in prison is on the cross. In the gospels, there's seven sayings recorded of what Jesus said on the cross. You know what one of them was? I thirst. He was hungry and thirsty on the cross. You know what another one was? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was estranged, cast out by his closest disciples, by everyone around him, by even his heavenly father for a time as he was forsaken on the cross. Rather than clothing him, they cast lots for his garments. He was naked. When you're crucified, you die of asphyxiation. He was sick and dead in our place. And he was nailed, stuck, imprisoned under the sentence of death Under the curse of God's wrath, he was in prison for us because, as Isaiah says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. See, the thing about sheep is they go astray, and all we have. But the same Jesus, who judges according to works, was judged on behalf of the sheep so that he could say, truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. See, he was judged for the sheep, so that at the judgment, the sheep could receive eternal life. He was cursed for the sheep, so that at the judgment, the sheep could receive the blessing 
of the Father. The sheep weren't righteous by birth. No, none are, right? All we, like sheep, have gone astray. But the Lord laid on a good shepherd the iniquities of the sheep, and the good shepherd laid down his life for the sheep. We're all good at judging others. We're all doing it. But there's a judgment that judges us. Ignore it. Ignore the least of Jesus' disciples, his brothers, and you will receive eternal punishment. Get scared of it and try to just do some good things to get Jesus off your back, and you will receive eternal punishment. You want to receive eternal life? There's only one way to do it. Look to the shepherd and believe. See him on the cross, made hungry, made thirsty, made naked, estranged, imprisoned, sick and dead for you and believe. See him doing those things for you when you were hungry and thirsty. He's done this for you. What does he say? He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever eats me will never be hungry again. He says, drink of the water of the world and you'll be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give will never thirst. You were far off. You were restrained. What does he do? He comes and preach peace to you who are far off. And he brings you near when you were a stranger from God. When you were naked, when you had no good works of your own to offer up to God, he offers up a perfect righteousness and clothes you in his righteousness before his heavenly father. And when you were in prison under the sentence of death and under the weight of your sins, he went into prison for you and broke you out when he rose from the dead. Look to the shepherd and believe. Believe in Jesus Christ, who will come again to judge the living and the dead, and you will have eternal life. You will not come into judgment, but you have passed from death to life. And from there, as you see his incredible love for you, he will develop in you love for him and love for the least of his brothers. And when he returns, you will hear him say, come. You who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. Let's pray.